Hey friend, I am so excited for this episode. Talking about emotional eating and coping with emotions without using food is one of my favorite things to talk about. So let's dive right in. If you follow me on social media or have listened to the first eight episodes, you know how I feel about emotional eating. If this is your first time hearing the show, you may be in for a shock. I don't think emotional eating is the big, hairy, scary monster waiting to attack. That's what diet culture has taught us and what it wants you to believe. Also, you won't see what diet culture really is. The big wolf hiding in sweet old granny's bed with her hat and spectacles on. Emotional eating is something we have all done since birth. And when we fight it, we are fighting against our human nature. Which means we'll fail. Biology always wins, people. So here's your fairy godmother telling you it's okay that you emotionally eat. It's a very effective coping tool, and I don't want to take that away from you. Instead, let's look at how else you can cope with uncomfortable emotions so you aren't always turning to food to feel better. But before we do that, let's talk more about why we turn to food to cope. Like I just said, we use it because it works. Almost instantly. Feel an emotion such as boredom? Grab the bag of chips and... You've got something to occupy your time. Feeling guilty for something you said? Grab a donut and instant punishment. Emotional eating lies on a continuum. On one end, we have sensory gratification, and on the other end, we have numbing and punishment. Looking at all points along the continuum, we have sensory gratification, comfort, distraction, sedation, and punishment. We'll go over each, and you can decide if you've engaged in this form of emotional eating at some point in your life. Remember to do this with curiosity rather than judgment. We've all engaged in emotional eating. This exercise is done to give you an idea of when you've engaged so that you can bring these to mind later as you think of other ways to cope. On the far left of the continuum is sensory gratification. This comes from eating something pleasurable and fully enjoying it. When I sit down with friends to enjoy some cheesecake and we all take time to let the bites dissolve in our mouths, we are at this point on the spectrum. Just to the right is comfort. Think eating chicken noodle soup when you aren't feeling well, or when I prepare grilled cheese and tomato soup on Christmas because that's what my mom always made. These are comfort foods, and there's no shame in comfort eating. The key is to stay online while engaging in comfort eating, and not the internet online. I mean, online in your body. Distraction comes next on the continuum of emotional eating. Food can be a great tool for distracting us from thoughts and feelings we want to avoid. Unfortunately, it also blocks our ability to detect intuitive signals, things like hunger and fullness cues, and ultimately, our emotions and needs. There's nothing wrong with wanting to distract yourself here and there. It becomes problematic when we refuse to acknowledge what is going on within us. Learning other tools to manage your thoughts, emotions, and honoring your needs allows us to distract less. Moving along the continuum is sedation. This is distraction on steroids, when we're using food to numb out. Several clients have referred to this as a food coma or a food hangover. Like distraction, sedation keeps you from experiencing and honoring what your body and mind need. When we sedate with food, we also lose the pleasure that food can provide. Again, eating to numb out occasionally has little effect. Unfortunately, this can become a slippery slope and can quickly turn into a habit before you notice it. 
last on the spectrum, is using food as punishment. This could be the actual act of eating to punish yourself, such as eating large amounts of food in an angry or forceful manner, or in the act of beating yourself up later for having eaten so much, or eaten certain foods. There is no pleasure in using food to punish. We all fall in this continuum while eating, and if you notice not liking where you fall, I have an answer for you. And no, it's not have more willpower, or just stop doing that. Because neither of those things is helpful, and will add more shame to your eating. I definitely don't want that. I'm trying to help you heal from that. My solution is understanding and compassion. Whether it's from listening to this podcast, reading books, or working directly with me, I hope you start to see how you are not 100% to blame for your relationship with food and your body. Oftentimes, we learn how to relate to these by watching our parents and those around us. My hope is that you will develop more compassion towards yourself rather than blame or pity. Self-compassion to say, I know I did my best. I learned food was an easy and effective way to deal with uncomfortable emotions. Now that I know there are other options, I can start using them. To help you go further in your awareness, let's look at some of the feelings you might be trying to manage with food. In my experience, the number one reason people eat when they aren't hungry is because of boredom. Food is an easy way to fill time because of the time involved with preparing the food. Even if you're grabbing a bag of chips, the act of eating can break up the monotony of the day. Whether it's the weekend and you have no plans or you're working on a project, Food is an easy and effective way to deal with boredom. As I'm working on this episode, I noticed I've taken a break to grab a snack. Actually, I made tea and drank some mango juice, but it was for the same purpose. Have you ever found yourself reaching for a snack to fight off boredom? Don't worry, you're not alone, friend. Now let's move on to excitement. This could be related to boredom, as eating can add excitement to your life, but it can also stand alone. Planning a meal can bring a lot of excitement as you go through what to prepare, who to invite, and how to serve. This could also happen when we start another diet. I remember the hope and excitement I'd feel when I chose the next program or diet to try, hoping this would be the one that finally worked, envisioning myself in the future looking and feeling the way I wanted. And we all know how that turns out, feeling like a failure, so the excitement was very short-lived. Another reason people use food is as a bribe or a reward. Do you remember the Pizza Hut Book It program? This might be the reason I simultaneously love reading and pizza. When I was in grade school, we were rewarded with pizza when we read. Read so many books, or for so many minutes, and we earned a star to put on our Book It badge. When the badge was filled with stars, you could redeem it for a personal pan pizza. You might also notice this as a parent whether it's something you've done personally or something you witnessed other parents doing. Bribing children with treats. If you be a good girl, we'll get ice cream when we're done. Ah, there are so many things I have against this. So much so, I think we'll devote a whole episode to it later. But for now, let's talk about using food to cope with uncomfortable feelings such as frustration, anger, stress, and depression. Did you know that you are more likely to choose a food that packs a crunch when you're frustrated or angry? It's true. The physical act of biting and crunching can be very aggressive and a way to help you release those feelings. Stress can also lead you to reaching for food to cope. Stress and anxiety often produce adrenaline, 
so that you have plenty of energy to deal with the real or imagined threat. This causes blood sugar to elevate and digestion to slow. Chronic stress also raises cortisol levels. Remember how I said in a previous episode that eating helps engage the parasympathetic nervous system? It's no wonder we turn to food when we're feeling stressed. We're looking for a quick way to relax, and food does the job. You may be experiencing low mood or depression. It's something we all go through from time to time. There's no shame in that. And at the time of this recording, there are a lot of things going on in the world that could have you feeling down. Turning to food helps us to avoid those feelings, or to numb out if we don't want to address it. Food also helps to soothe us and provides pleasure. So while the outside world falls apart, I can be happy at home eating cheesecake. Did any of these specific feelings seem like something you use food to cope with? There are so many other feelings that we can use food for, but for the sake of time, we aren't going to get into all of them. Now that you have an idea of what emotions you're looking to cope with, Let's look at how to cope with emotional eating. First, ask yourself if you are physically hungry, and if so, honor your hunger and eat. If not, ask yourself, what am I feeling? For some, this may be more difficult as you've been avoiding feeling or thinking about feeling. That's okay. You're here now. Just start small by noticing what you feel in your body. Name those sensations. Then ask yourself, which of the five categories of emotions are you feeling? Happy, sad, fear, anger, or disgust? Then ask yourself, what do I need? If you decide you really need to eat, well, then eat. But if you figure out you need rest, go take a nap or lay down quietly. When you tune in to what your mind and body really need, you can find other ways to meet your needs without food. By acknowledging and feeling your emotions, you are in a better position to deal with them. Here are some of my favorite ways to manage my emotions. Self-coaching, journaling, time with friends and family, allowing myself to cry, breathing, coloring, and walking with Emrys. Another great benefit of feeling the feels, as the kids say these days, is you have less of a need for distractions. While you're working on this, I encourage you to find other ways to distract yourself other than food. It's also helpful to have some go-to activities because sitting with our feelings 24-7 is exhausting. Some of my favorite ways to distract are reading or listening to a book, going for a walk, gardening, writing or journaling, watching a movie or a show, doing my nails, and listening to music. Remember that magical shift that happens in principle three, making peace with food? Once you've made peace with food, it becomes less alluring. Adding new ways of coping increases this, and you may find yourself turning to food less and less. Know that using food to cope will probably be something you do the rest of your life. And when you know how to use that to your advantage, it can be a beautiful thing. These days, I thoroughly enjoy my coping sessions with food because I know I deserve to feel good. And so do you. Your relationship with food and your body will become more pleasant and enjoyable as you begin to bring them into your life in a non-threatening way. So let's shift gears and talk about principle eight, respecting your body. Unless you've been living under a rock or you have stellar blinders on, you've been subjected to the message that your body is not good enough unless it looks a certain way. So you try to hit the target, to look like the celebrities that have the best bod. Except the target keeps shifting. 
Back in the 50s and 60s, the ideal body was the hourglass shape of Marilyn Monroe, a small waist and large breasts. By the late 60s, we began to see the shift away from curvy, yet still slim, bodies, the very thin bodies of Twiggy. And this trend was here to stay for decades. In fact, as the 70s rolled into the 80s and the 80s rolled into the 90s, the ideal became thinner and thinner. Anyone remember Kate Moss and Allie McBeal? In the early 2000s and up until now in 2021, we've seen a slight shift to the ideal having more curves again. Big boobs are back, along with big butts. But the ideal of having a flat stomach remains. We're told to look a certain way, and as we can see from history, that body ideal is always shifting. It's really hard to hit a moving target. This ideal body doesn't allow for genetic variance, and has taught us to fight against our genetic blueprint. As Triboli and Resch say, just as a person with a shoe size of 8 would not expect to realistically squeeze into a size 6, it is equally futile and uncomfortable to have the same expectation about body size. But mostly, respect your body, so you can feel better about who you are. It's hard to reject diet mentality if you're unrealistic and overly critical about your body shape. There have been attempts to shift to body positivity, which I think is great and very much needed. And unfortunately, it can fall short, particularly when that leads to toxic positivity. This is also where positive affirmations fall short. It's really difficult to get from a place of, I hate my body, to, my body is freaking fantastic. And when we try to make that big of a jump, we'll land flat on our face and chalk it up to yet another failed attempt. We can dial it back a bit to body acceptance, which also takes some work. So let's dial it back even more to body neutrality and body respect. By embracing body neutrality and body respect, we can acknowledge there are parts of ourselves that we don't love, and that's okay. This approach allows for a lot of gray rather than subscribing to yet another black and white thinking pattern. We shift from a place of body hate to viewing it through a neutral lens. There are things I love about my body and things I don't love so much, but I also don't hate those parts. I respect all of my body. That means I treat it with dignity and meet its basic needs. When I'm hungry, I eat, trying my best to honor what it is hungry for. When I'm thirsty, I drink something. And when I need to pee or poo, I do. I also feed my other three bodies, mental, emotional, and spiritual. But that's for another episode. So how do you begin to respect your body? Well, let's look at this in two ways. By making it comfortable and meeting its basic needs. We all deserve to be comfortable. And you, friend, are no exception. We also deserve to have our basic needs met. So let's get you comfortable. You don't need to reach a certain weight or size before you buy new clothes. Having clothes, particularly underwear, that fit well and are comfortable is huge for your overall level of comfort. No one wants to be picking undies out of their booty all day. If this sounds like you, please, you have my permission that you need it to buy new underwear. If you're frequently pulling at your shirt or your pants, buy a few pieces that you love that feel comfortable on you. And since it's still warm here in Iowa as I write this, thick thigh ladies, this one is for you. If your shorts right up and it's uncomfortable, you have every right to find shorts that fit well while you sit and while you walk. 
or invest in some short type underwear, like biker shorts, to wear under skirts and dresses. This has been amazing for me this summer. You deserve to be comfortable at every stage of life and throughout the day. I encourage you to take an inventory of your closet. What in there hasn't been worn through several season changes? I'm not going to tell you to get rid of them, especially if you aren't ready for that. What I do suggest is putting them in a tote in your basement or some other place you won't be reminded of them. It can be really disappointing to open your closet and see all the clothes you had worn or wanted to wear that no longer fit. It's also a really great feeling to open your closet and see clothes that fit and get you excited. I'd much rather be happy about my closet than miserable every time I open the door. Something else that can really make you miserable and something you can stop doing to increase your body respect is the body check game. Ever walk into a room and immediately start to compare yourself to the other people there? Comparing things like body size and seeing where your body rates next to everyone else. This often leads to assumptions about the other person, especially if you don't know them. Assuming you'd be happier if you had a body like that, or that they have more willpower than you do, when in fact, the other person may be just as unhappy as you are. Which leads me to body bashing. I have a saying I share with clients quite often. What you focus on, you get more of. Every time you focus on the parts of yourself you don't like, you create more self-consciousness and body worry. When I would see myself in the mirror in the morning and focus on how thick my thighs were and how much I hated them, I'd notice myself picking apart other parts of my body throughout the day. And the more I picked apart those parts, the more I found that I disliked about my body. However, when I practice more neutrality and respect for my body, I find myself focusing on things not related to my body, or at the very least, not having so many negative thoughts about myself. Along these lines is ditching the fat talk. Remember from episode 10 when I talked about how isolating ditching diet culture can be because everyone around you is likely engaging in diet talk or fat talk? Yeah. This is the public form of body bashing, and while it can help you feel more connected to others, it disconnects you from your own body. It can be helpful to have phrases ready to go for when people around you engage in diet talk or fat talk. Something to help you disengage from or change the conversation to something more productive. Another way to respect your body is to let go of the fantasy in your head of how things are supposed to be and instead be realistic. There are things that we cannot change, like our genetics, no matter how much we try. And I get the appeal of the fantasy. I love dreaming and often have my head in the clouds. I've chosen to change my fantasy. Do you know you could do that? Sure can. Rather than fantasizing about all the things having a smaller body would give me, I now fantasize about achieving all those things in the body I have now, while also accepting that my body may change by the time I reach the end. I choose to fantasize about a world where we aren't judged for or have our worth based on what we look like, but rather what we do and how we treat each other. Before we say farewell, my friend, let's recap principle seven and eight. Principle seven. Cope with your emotions without using food. I fully believe you can use food to cope, and when it is your only source of coping, it will lead to more misery. I shared with you the continuum for emotional eating, from sensory gratification to using food as punishment, and we talked about some of the feelings that you may be using food to cope with. I shared my solution of compassion and understanding and dove a little deeper into this. We also discussed other ways you can cope with uncomfortable emotions that don't involve food. 
Principle eight focuses on body respect. I shared a brief history of the ever-changing body ideal and how hard it is to hit a moving target. I shared how body positivity can be problematic and how shifting to a lens of body respect and body neutrality is much more effective. I also talked about how you can begin to respect your body by making it comfortable and meeting its basic needs. If after this episode, you're still struggling to believe you deserve respect, that's okay. In fact, it's natural. Don't be hard on yourself. Here are some intentional thoughts to practice related to body respect that may help you. My body deserves to be fed. My body deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. My body deserves to be dressed comfortably and in the manner to which I am accustomed. My body deserves to be touched affectionately and with respect. My body deserves to move comfortably. Now, until next time, friend, be well, and I will see you in the next episode where we talk about intuitive eating principle nine, exercise, feel the difference.